Throughout history, the most effective strategy has been to buy low and sell high. But those who engage in market timing will likely do just the opposite. So why do investors persist? Welcome to Bernstein Insights, and this is The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, Senior Investment Strategist, and I'm joined today once again by my colleague, fellow Senior Investment Strategist, Paul Robertson. So, Paul, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. This is probably like the, I don't know, the fifth or sixth time that you've been with us. I hope to be another five or six <laughs> times in the in the year or two into the future. You keep doing great work, and you definitely will be. So, uh, let's get started. Obviously, the markets have been volatile over the last several months, last couple of years. There's been a number of issues that have led to that. Concerns about trade, concerns about Brexit, other geopolitical issues. Money has gone into bonds, come out of stocks. And all of this is suggesting that the desire to time the market will continue. But yet, Paul, your research suggests that market timing doesn't work. Why do investors keep trying? Well, Matt, I think there are three basic reasons here. The first is that people are just inherently overconfident about their ability to predict market downturns and their re-entry to markets at a later point. Second, I think people get confused about their time horizon in times of high emotion. And lastly, taxes. I think people forget about the importance of taxes when thinking about market timing. Okay, so there are these three reasons that you've identified for the reasons why investors try to time the markets. Overconfidence, time horizon, and taxes. Let's walk through each of them one by one. Let's start with overconfidence. Yeah, so money managing money, investing money is a really emotional process. And it really taps into some pretty primal parts of our brain. Our self-image is tied up in the amount of money that we have. Threats to the amount of money we have really trigger flight or fight responses within us. And it causes us to overreact to market movements, to very confidently stride forth when the evidence for our actions is actually really slight. All right, I totally get that. We all have this innate aversion to risk. I certainly do. What about time horizon, your second reason? Yeah, well, I think the time horizon issue is best illustrated by imagining a collision between our present self and our future self. I mean, just imagine if yourself in 20 or 30 years' time had an opportunity to talk to you right now today about the decisions you're making. What would that future self say to you? There's really a collision here that can occur. Uh, In the short term, we're interested in security and, and being free from anxiety. But our future self is interested in how much wealth we've been able to accumulate in the markets over time. Unfortunately, however, in any collision between our present self and our future self, our present self usually wins out. Right. We have a bias to the present. That's what you're saying. That's exactly right. Okay. So look, I recognize that as an investor, stocks are there for long-term growth, but essentially what you're saying is that we can't see past this present day anxiety. What's the third issue that causes investors to try to time the market? I think the third issue is that people completely overlook the impact of taxes on market timing decisions. If taxes are considered, which is very rare, taxes are typically seen as a really small price to pay. 
But your analysis shows that it's exactly the opposite, that that taxes have a meaningful impact on this whole decision-making process. Exactly. You see, when taxable investors leave the market, they most often owe a pretty significant tax bill for capital gains. Now, when you pay that tax bill, that means that the wealth available for reinvestment in the market is significantly reduced. I mean, over the last 10 years, the the markets have gone up enormously. If people are to exit the market today, Mm -hmm. they may have only 90% of their wealth to be reinvested or 85% of their wealth to be reinvested because they've paid away 10 or 15% of their wealth as taxes. So that, that tax bill, by reducing the wealth available for reinvestment, really makes it harder for you to match the performance over time of someone who just stayed in the market and rode out the trough. But in addition, if you're right and markets actually do decline, people who stay put now have an opportunity to harvest losses that will offset gains that they may have incurred earlier in the year. In fact, it will allow them to defer the the ultimate realization of those gains sometime into the future. So by deferring taxes, you're really reducing taxes. So it's a double whammy here. You, the person who left the market, have just increased your taxes. If the market actually falls after that point, the buy and hold investor gets to decrease their taxes. That's great because I think often we just think about, if we think about taxes, we think about the first, which is the cost that you have to pay to get out. Now, that doesn't always occur, but what's often left you know, outside of that whole thought process is the second, which is the missed opportunity, which you and I and Tara have often talked about or talked about certainly in a podcast before. I guess, what, what can investors do to resist this urge to market time? How can they overcome their instincts? Yes, well, this is a tough question. Most decisions made in the heat of the moment are are really emotional decisions driven by these flight or fight responses. So what you need to do is get out in front of that kind of decision-making process long before you're gripped with fear about the risk of a market decline or even further market declines. What I would suggest you do is one of or both of these two ideas. The first is... Take a really dispassionate look at the math about market timing. And that's what we did in the, in the paper that we just released. Mm-hmm. The second thing to do is to really spend some time in a robust planning process with your financial advisor. A really robust planning process is going to instill in you the confidence that your wealth can actually withstand a market downturn and that you can continue to be confident you'll be able to achieve your financial goals through time. Right. I think that um, advice is great. All of our advisors are utilizing that wealth forecasting analysis to ensure that our clients are confident in their future path, in the asset allocation that they have today, which reflects their spending and so forth. Paul, let's just take this a little bit further. Talk about the paper that you've just written and um, some of the particulars. Yes. So we recently published a paper that really goes into the math of market timing in a lot of detail. Now, in this podcast, I think we need to keep it at a high level. Yes, please. Yes, exactly. So let's try and set the scene. So you're an investor. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Matt, I think you can tell this story. You're an investor. 
The I mean, market's climbing. Yeah, I'll paint a scenario that you and I, Paul, often deal with when we're dealing with clients that have uh, concerns about the market, are thinking about moving to the sidelines. They're up a lot. They've made a lot of money over the last uh, several years, but they're nervous that they're going to lose a meaningful portion of it, given all of the geopolitical winds that are blowing. So how should they think about that potential move to the sidelines? Yeah. Look, whether or not exiting the market makes sense really depends on at least four questions that we invite people to really think carefully through before they exit the market. Okay, four questions. Let's take each in turn. What's the first question? So the first question is, when do you really need the money? Now, if it's in the next year or two, then it might make sense to liquidate the portfolio. On the other hand, if you really don't need the money for another decade or two, well, it's important to remember that stocks have historically chased pretty powerful upward paths over that kind of time horizon. Okay, well, let's take the third investor, I guess, that, that's unsure if they're going to need the money, right? They don't need it in a year, but it's also not going to be 30 years from now. What do they do? Well, I think we all have to be honest with ourselves here. Part of the process that many people go through to justify a market timing decision is to first convince themselves that their time horizon is a lot shorter than it really is. The example that I've confronted many times in my career is the person who's just retired. Retirement's a pretty emotional moment. You've gone from financing your lifestyle out of wage or salary income to having to live off your portfolio. And it's pretty anxiety-inducing moment, and, mm. and people often respond by assuming that their time horizon for investment has collapsed. You know, a couple of years before retirement, people are happy to talk about 30 and 35-year time horizons, but immediately after, right. it's like, oh, I can't afford another mm. market downturn. My time horizon has completely collapsed. It's important to step back and recognize that for most of our clients, upon retirement, they are looking at on average, about 30 years of life, of, of needing to fund a lifestyle. That's a really long time horizon, and people need to be honest with themselves. At the moment of retirement, you still have a really long time horizon. Okay, so the first question is an honest assessment of, of someone's investment horizon. What's the second question that should be asked at this point in time when someone is considering trying to time the market and moving to the sidelines? The next question you've got to consider is what is the tax impact of exiting? You, I think this is a big one. This is probably the, you know, in my mind, this is the biggest question that needs to be asked. Yeah, you, you really need to sit down and say, what are the unrealized gains in my portfolio and what's my tax rate? You have to sit there and calculate how much less wealth you will be able to reinvest in the market at that point in time where you determine it's time to go back into the market. Because that number is critical in understanding how much lower stocks have to be to ensure that you get to the same ending place you'd have got to if you just stayed put in the market and ridden through the swings in, in the market through time. Right. And our advisors and Paul and you and Tara and others are always helpful in these decisions and quantifying how much the market has to fall in order to offset the taxes that they'll inevitably pay. That's inevitable. They know that they'll pay those taxes um, given the gains, which we also know in the portfolio. But then there's this other issue, which we talked about earlier. It's not just the taxes you have to pay on April 15th, the following year. It's the missed opportunity 
of harvesting losses that may occur later in the uh, future of the relationship. So, Paul, let's move on. What's the third question that needs to be asked? So the third question is, where are you going to invest your money after you leave equities? Yeah, mostly we see investors considering cash or, or high quality bonds as a place on the sidelines rather than remaining in the stock market. Yeah. Now, the issue, of course, is that there's much lower long-term return expectations around cash and bonds. So few investors can really afford to sit there long-term. I mean, if you're worried about a potential market downturn impacting your ability to meet your financial goals through time, Mm -hmm. sitting in uh, low-return asset classes like cash and bonds for an extended period of time almost assures you of potential risks around meeting your financial goals. So- most investors are going to need to settle on a re-entry point back into the stock market. I'm going to assume that's your fourth question. Let's just recap the top three so far. When are we going to actually need the money, right? So understanding our time horizon. What are the tax implications? Where do we invest in the meantime before we go back in? What's the fourth question? So the fourth question is, under what circumstances are you actually going to wade back into the market? And you really need to think this through because you're anticipating market downturns, but market downturns after your exit point are not guaranteed. So you have to have a view in mind. If the market soars higher after you've exited, I mean, obviously admitting defeat is hard, but there's going to need to be a point where you cut your losses and you re-enter the market. Better to understand that before you exit the market than to be grappling with it in the weeks and the months and the years that follow. Now, let's say that you're right. You're anticipating a market downturn uh, and the market does fall. You've got to also be pretty clear-eyed about when you're going to re-enter the markets. And you've got to be able to display the fortitude to embrace stocks when they've dropped. Now, Mm -hmm. this is hard. If you're worried about stocks today, how are you going to feel if the Dow has fallen 5,000 points or if the S&P 500 has fallen 500 points? You're likely to be in a world where people are much more aware of the risks around stocks, where things seem much more uncertain. So you're going to have to have the fortitude to get back in the stocks when potentially they seem even riskier than they seem today. Right. I think that's a, that's a great point. It is undeniable that if you move to the sidelines, sell stocks and pay taxes, your re-entry point has to be lower to offset the cost of those taxes relative to the investor who stayed in the entire point in time. And Paul, in your analysis, you pinpointed precisely how much lower the market would need to fall in order for you to be equivalent or better off than an investor who stayed in, that buy and hold investor, didn't you? Yes. Uh, It's interesting. In the paper, we stepped through the math in detail. And as you say, we actually gave some rather precise numbers for how much lower the market has to be or how much lower your re-entry point needs to be. And let me summarize the variables. And I think as I summarize them, you'll get the sense for why it's a little bizarre to describe us as as having pinpointed precisely those re-entry points. You see, the, the first thing you have to appreciate in this calculation is the size of the embedded gains in the portfolio. In other words, the taxes that would be owed upon realizing uh, your portfolio right now. That's something that you can actually calculate. 
But interestingly, your optimal re-entry point is also a function of the size of the market downturn following the exit. And, And let me explain that. You see, if you'd stayed in the market, you'd have had that opportunity to harvest losses and reduce your taxes, defer taxes into the future. Well, you don't know standing here today, how far the market will fall and how big that loss harvesting opportunity will be. You also need to at least estimate the returns that are going to be generated by stocks over your true time horizon, which might be a decade or two decades or or whatever. Now, again, that's something that you're not going to know uh, at the time you make your exit decision, but it's a critical part of calculating that optimal re-entry point. And lastly, uh, again, let me just emphasize, you're going to have to be clear-eyed about whether or not you will have the courage to re-enter. If and when the market falls to the level that your calculation suggests is the level it has to fall uh, for you to now have a clear path to re-entry. So, Paul, obviously there's a lot of unknowables in making this decision. Exactly. And, And that's why... We really think investors have to acknowledge the inherent riskiness of market timing. It's not enough just to anticipate that the market is about to fall. You have to estimate how much it's going to fall, what lost harvesting opportunities that's going to realise for people who stay put. You have to estimate how much further the market will rise over the next decade or so. You've got to nail all of this. And it just displays the inherent riskiness of market timing. Now, the data here is unequivocal. Most market timers end up with lower returns than those of long-term buy and hold investors. And our analysis should really help illustrate why. So I'm I'm oversimplifying, but you have to get right when to leave, when to come back, and determining your re-entry point relies heavily on variables that either you can't predict or are out of your control, right? That's driven by the market. Exactly. Let me put it another way. For taxable investors, this optimal re-entry point is a function of the tax bill you'll owe on exiting, as well as how far the market falls after you exit. The further it falls, the lower your optimal re-entry point becomes. And it's also a function of the magnitude of the rebound between now and when you'll really need the money. The the stronger the market returns over your true time horizon, again, the lower the optimal re-entry point becomes. So before we go, Paul, I want to bring back in the importance of wealth planning or wealth forecasting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Look, I think the math is daunting here. There are just too many unknowns. What you really need to do is put yourself in a place where you can avoid succumbing to temptation. And we really think a, a thorough planning process is the way to do it. A thorough planning process does a couple of things. Firstly, it allows you to be really honest about your time horizon. It really reinforces what your true time horizon is while explicitly aligning your asset allocation and your objectives. But the second thing that a really robust planning process can do is reassure you that your portfolio can actually withstand a significant market downturn while maintaining a very high likelihood of you being able to achieve your long-term goals over time. When we go through planning processes with our clients, the 10,000 potential paths that we use to stress test our plans explicitly include significant market downturns. So this planning process should help you reframe your question from, 
oh my God, how much am I going to lose if the market goes down? Two, what would happen if the market went down on my ability to achieve my long-term financial plans? Now, if the answer to that second question is not much, then you are far, far less likely to jeopardize your future self with emotional decision-making in the present. And to be clear, all those 10,000 trials that you talked about in that wealth forecasting analysis, they assume bad markets. They assume sell-offs. That's right. And so that's the key is we've baked it in there. And as long as the analysis says that that investor, that client is fine over the long term, then we tend to pull back our lens and focus more on the long term than we do over the next six months or a year. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, Paul, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks, as always, for joining us on The Pulse. As always, it's been a pleasure to be here, Matt. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our thoughts on market timing, please see the link to our white paper in this episode's description where we include our latest research piece, The Hidden Cost of Market Timing. And as always, if you have any feedback or ideas, please email us at insights at Bernstein.com or find us on Twitter at Bernstein PWM. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.